Welcome to the Business of Security podcast, episode number four. Your hosts today are Chad Beckman and Ed Snodgrass. Today, they talk with Lauren Mahler, president of Dealey Mahler Strategies. The topic is communicating in a crisis. Now let's get to it. industry need to start talking about that we're not doing today. Information technology is built on a horrible foundation. If we could sort of redo and start from the beginning, we would be so much better off. If you don't invest in it and keep it running, it will blow up. We also have to be able to go in with solutions, not just problems. We have a long way to go if we're going to win this fight. At the end of the day, educated people are really the best countermeasure against all the threats, the threats, the threats, the threats, the threats. Thank you for joining us today, Lauren. Appreciate you having us here. Ed and I are excited to talk to you uh, based on everything that we've uh, heard about your experience so far and how it, I think, is a very large emerging need in the business community, um, and that is crisis communications. So uh, before we get started, could you let uh, our audience know a little bit of your background and how did you even get into this thing called crisis communications? Well, yeah, absolutely. And first off, thank you guys so much for having me on uh, today. It's really exciting to get to talk about this subject in general and to really, you know, sum it all up and have a conversation. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. So yeah, this is kind of a strange space that I've stumbled into. What Dealey Mahler Strategies does is we work with companies, organizations, different shapes and sizes on strategic communications planning around mostly crisis uh, crisis communications in the cybersecurity space and you know play some in the defense and public affairs space as well. But we really help companies increase their impact and then prepare and manage crises as they come up. Um, and as you can imagine, the bulk of that work all falls square into the cyber space these days. So I got into that. I come from a background. I spent over a decade working in national security roles down in Washington, D.C. I was on Capitol Hill. I was at the Department of Defense. I was at the National Security Council, always dancing in an overlapping space with each job that looked at policy and communications and politics and security and how all of those things come together and how you merge all of those different sides of an organization in order to actually do something and to get something done. So did that from all those different, you know, cool seats around town. And then I moved up to the New York area and I started working in corporate communications in New York and applying a lot of those same sort of broad reaching communication strategies to corporate clients. And naturally, a lot of that work fell in the crisis space. Um, when you work in politics, that's pretty much just what you do, second nature. And turns out it's an actual thing out in the real world. Um, so I was working with clients um, in that space and really started seeing that there was a big need and a, a gap, if you will, in the space between the priorities and the business objectives that companies had and how they still met those objectives when there was a crisis. Um, and the space of cybersecurity, how those things, when you got into a crisis that involved a data breach or some other type of cyber incident, then it became a little bit less clear. Everybody's playbook got a little fuzzier. Um, and so that's a space that I moved into and have been working in ever since. Exciting. Wow. Uh, so in total, how many years? <laughs> how many years does this make now that you've been in this role uh, function? Well, Dealey Mahler Strategies uh, stood up about two years ago. 
now. So Congratulations. over a 15 plus odd year career, the last two of which have been focused primarily in this space. Great. Wonderful. So with that, Ed, uh, you had a couple of questions you wanted to uh, launch right in with Lauren. I did. Oh, All right, fire away. <laughs> so we were kind of talking before we started to record and you said something in just our casual conversation that really kind of struck me. Essentially, you said that, you know, companies really are either getting ready for some type of cyber incident or they're responding to it. And I think that is uh, an incredibly accurate statement. You know, at SDS here, we obviously, like I said, we, we work with, uh, you know, some breach uh, cases as well. We function as expert witnesses and so forth. And um, I really want to get your perspective on something that we've seen a lot and you probably have as well. And that is, you know, companies that create an incident response plan. Either they put a lot of work into it to create internally themselves or they bring a third party in to assist them with that. And it gets created and perhaps it satisfies a compliance requirement that that organization might need to use it for. Uh, but then it kind of gets stuck on a shelf in the hopes that it will never be needed. I want to ask you, so along with a good plan goes a good crisis response team, right? And so I want to talk to you about what's the importance of having a good crisis response team and then, you know, rehearsals and tabletops and all the things that go into, you know, effective crisis response. I know it's kind of a broad-based question, but I'll just let you take it from there. <laughs> I, I think you pretty much hit all of it there. So uh, I'll just start talking and you guys stop me in about an hour. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, to, to get to the part of your question about the need to have a specific cyber response team, an incident response team, um, I think this is a critical, critical component that is basically at the core of everything you do. Um, you know, somebody has to be making decisions about something and actions to take in the heat of a moment, and you want to make sure that the people involved in that decision-making process are the right people, that A, they're going to maintain their calm in that situation, but that they're also representing the right parts of your organization that are going to be impacted by any type of, of an event. So a lot of times you see, you know, a handful of common mistakes that people say, well, we have a, we have a, a team, we have a, a team that's ready. And you look at who is involved in that team and it's really great representation from the security side of the house. And then it stops. Well, that's great. If you're really just worried about protecting and defending the security side of your house and not anything else related to your business. So we always say you need to make sure that your crisis response team covers the functions that are going to be impacted across your company. If the main goal of everything is business continuity and to make sure your organization is resilient in the face of an incident, then you have to make sure that the people who are responsible for the well-being of those different pieces of your company are represented in the team that's making those decisions. So obviously from my slightly biased perspective, you really need to make sure you have a communications function covered in there too, because somebody's going to have to talk to someone and everyone needs to be involved in knowing how that's going to work and roles and responsibilities. And we could spend easily an hour or more just talking about the composition of that team and why. So in my mind, the actual titles of the individuals involved are less important than the functions and the authorities that they bring to the table. So I think that's a you hit right on it. That's a hugely critical part. And, you know, just like with any team that you put together anywhere, you know, you look at the NBA, they're not going to go out and draft the best and brightest of everybody and then tell them all to go home and come back on the you know opening day when it's the first game. So you have to 
practice. It seems so obvious and so much. I find so often that in conversations with different clients that they're expecting this to be rocket science and it's not, it's really just common sense, but it tends to get shouted down by all the complicated technical side of everything. So it's a pretty basic thing to say, if you're going to make this plan and you're going to put together this great team, you guys need to go out and practice that plan so that everybody knows what they're doing and is prepared for that fog of war when it comes up. That's an um, interesting term, fog of war. I like that. Yeah, exactly. As you can't shake everything when you you know work in national security as long as I did. So I'll, I'll keep the acronyms to a minimum, but fog of war is so appropriate in this situation. No, that's, that's, that's great. So it seems like today that companies are almost judged on how they respond to a cybersecurity breach incident as opposed to whether or not they were actually breached in the first place, right? It seems like there's maybe even an expectation out there that, you know, infrastructures are so complex now, uh, the threat landscape is so vast and so dynamic that, you know, there's almost an expectation that at some point a company is going to get compromised in some way. And so when it comes to a breach, you know, a company discovers through whatever reason, okay, well, there's been a breach, they've got a crisis response plan that, you know, they've got a team in place or what have you. In your opinion, I mean, what's the most important singular factor? And again, they're all important. So I'm not, you know, I don't want to say, well, if you do this, then everything else will fall into place because we all know <laughs> that's not going to happen. But you know, I mean, what's something that, that you see as you work with clients and that you've seen, you know, throughout the course of your government experience that really is maybe something that if you focus on that or you've practiced it or you have it in place, it maybe makes the other things either a little easier or the rest of the plan run a little more smoothly? I think that's a great question. And I'll absolutely repeat the, the qualifying statement there of just because you pick one doesn't mean you can ignore the others. Right. Because there are so many that stretch across so many different functions of your company that stretch across not just communications, but the technical side and, and you know, mitigating the impact to networks and reputation and all these different things. So I would say the one thing that is often overlooked, and if it's not overlooked, it's fairly regularly undervalued, is, again, not to to inject my own career bias into this, but it really is the value of effective communications. You get, when something happens, the immediate chaos that ensues and builds after that, um, from that initial moment where someone goes, oh, darn, something just happened, Mm -hmm. to the build where everyone else has that same reaction and gets drawn into it. Then... There tends to be a myopic focus on the specifics of what happened, what's going on, I need details, I need to know what's happening, and unless you have a plan with steps that you've trained to that are almost second nature or somebody in that team whose responsibility it is to look beyond just the specific technical what happened here, then you overlook some of those broader pieces. And when I say the communications in the immediate aftermath, I mean... Somebody needs to start acting on that. Someone needs to make sure that you have a statement on hand in case there's a leak. Someone needs to be preparing effective notifications to the right stakeholder groups, even if you don't know who those are going to be quite yet. If you've done the work ahead of time, you already know who your different stakeholders are. 
and who might need to be communicated with in various scenarios. Because um, it's not always going to be everybody all the time, but having already made 80% of those decisions ahead of time makes it easier to make them when they need to be done. And it's such a matter of timing. Everything doesn't happen in a nice, easy, linear fashion where something happens, you find out what it is, you decide who to talk to, and then you decide what to say and you go do it. All those things are usually in a big, giant swirl all at the same time. So planning ahead and knowing some of those things really does make a big difference and not overlooking that fact. You can look back at you know, 2017 and see more examples than I care to count of companies who lost focus on the side of the broader picture um, and didn't communicate effectively and the consequences were exponentially worse for them in the long run. The costs were higher because they didn't communicate in a good way. They didn't communicate in an effective way that actually reached the groups they needed to reach. Now a word from our sponsor, TrustMap, the business management system for security leaders. Let's hear from Aaron Pritz, president of Aaron Pritz & Associates, as he identifies how TrustMap provided a real solution to a real problem. My biggest problem was I inherited um, the incumbent GRC solution, which felt like from, you know, an ex-auditor to come up with some pretty simple risk assessments to assess against a standard operating procedure or a, uh, you know, NIST control framework, things like that, you know, it would take months and hundreds of thousands of dollars, cumulative to millions of dollars to put what I would describe as, you know, uh, a glorified spreadsheet. And I've heard other CISOs use that term. I can't quote, I can't uh, claim credit for that term. Uh, and it's not a positive light term. I was introduced to TrustMap. I actually found some stuff online as I was um, spending some time over the holidays looking for the biggest problems that I had faced in information security risk management and really unmet needs and how those could be solved in different ways. And I've got a caveat that I'm not a go buy another tool type of advocate. In fact, I think there's too many tools in information security, and I think we need to do more to consolidate tools versus just keep adding them on. If you wrap all of the stuff that I just set up into one package, I would say if you want to do very effective assessments and set those up with little to no overhead, uh, make them align to maturity frameworks, GDPR, CSF, anything that you want that's standard and basically have very interactive assessments that you can get results back, have control owners. You've got your assessment thing solved in way less time and spend than doing something like Archer or really any of the other GRC products. I would not qualify TrustMap as a GRC. I think they do some GRC-like things, um, but I would say that they're everything that GRC wanted to be but didn't get there. We'll come back later in the podcast to hear more from Aaron about his experience with TrustMap. For now, listeners of the podcast should know they can schedule a free trial of TrustMap at trustmap.com slash business. Now let's get back to the show. So you you just gave us a whole bunch of information to try to unpack. <laughs> I have a tendency to do that, so you know, yeah. I'll, I'll talk until you stop me. All right, so a couple of questions there. Um, let's say it's an event um, that occurred that requires external communication. Is the person that needs to deliver that message for a business different uh, for that external communication based on industry or company size? And let's take two types of companies, enterprise 
which are large corporations, and maybe the small, medium business space. Um, is the communications plan outward, at least on the initial announcement, to, let's say, the public? We've had this negative event occur. Is that going to be generally the same uh, person? Uh, let's say it's the CEO, uh, corporate communications, uh, whoever that might be, right? Can you help us guide us, guide our audience a little bit? Yeah, I think it's funny. There was a lot in that question that has its own series of answers. Okay. Um, so it's not just if you're small, you do this. If you're big, you do that. It breaks down even more so into the type of incident. Did you have an incident that is really catastrophic and impact your business? Or was it something on a smaller scale? And there are different considerations for, you know, small and mid-sized businesses as for larger enterprises. I tend to approach it and, and talk through it with different clients from the perspective of, what are your main objectives? And at the end of the day, everyone's main objective is to continue your business. Everyone's objective is business continuity. So what is it going to take for your business to keep functioning? And traditional, when you look at a larger enterprise, some of the more traditional rules of crisis communications can apply where you choose your spokesperson based on the audience that you're communicating to and the significance and the seriousness of the incident involved. So you very rarely are going to have an incident and then the next day your CEO is out talking to the media. That's just not a realistic scenario in the cyber world. Um, it might be in a different type of crisis, but it's not in this situation. So depending on who you're talking to, and you're not always talking to the public, there could be 10 different stakeholder groups within that category that you're going to talk to at different times and different people might be an appropriate spokesperson for one group and not for another. So who's going to speak to media if that's necessary? Who's going to speak to investors if that's necessary? Who's going to speak to customers if that's necessary? And as the event unfolds and the information evolves, then you learn more over time. One of the main notes that people tend to overlook also is that when you first start communicating in whatever way, shape, or form that takes, you have an obligation to set an expectation that information is going to evolve over time so that you can continue doing that. And as you need, as necessary, you can always change your spokesperson later on if something becomes more serious than you originally thought. That's sort of the, the kind of traditional who talks when approach. When you're a small and mid-sized business, there's a, a key distinction that I think oftentimes is overlooked, but is so important for that group of companies. And that's when you're small, your relationships with your customers and your relationships with your clients matter that much more. So much of your business is often run on the relationships that you have very carefully and painstakingly cultivated over time with these different customers and clients. And it may be that if something happens that's going to impact one of them, the very first thing you need to do is have the CEO pick up the phone and call that client, call that customer so that you maintain that personal relationship because so much more of your business is built on it. Makes so sense. I think that that's another very long answer to what seemed like a very simple question, but was misleadingly complex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think this is an education for, you know, at least I can speak for myself and I'm sure some of our listeners too, that, 
you know, crisis communications is a whole discipline upon itself. And what you described to us just in answering that question is all of these work streams and scenario planning that need to be thought through and then get people on board to understand their role when certain events do occur that triggers their participation. Uh, So critical. Uh, Absolutely. Yep. And planning, those are the types of sort of scenarios and mapping out, well, if this, then this, then this, then that, that becomes a lot harder to do in that whole fog of war. Mm. Like we were saying, after something happens and it's a little bit of, you know, it's chaos everywhere and people are trying to figure out what's going on. It's harder to really think through all the nuanced steps that are necessary to succeed in those various scenarios. So having them mapped out and making sure everyone knows their role and has, has practiced their role ahead of time makes a huge difference to whether or not you can pull that off. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just establishing some degree of muscle memory, you have to do that, right? I mean, absolutely. You know, the, the IT staff, the security staff, you know, the communication staff, I mean, all those individuals need to be trained well enough, at least within the disciplines of their role to have the skills, the baseline skills to be able to adapt to whatever the crisis is. Right. Right. And there's always, when it comes to the training piece, I always tell people it's not just training, it's training in a realistic setting. Mm -hmm. So there's a time and a place for a tabletop where everyone's got a script and you're talking through steps one through 10 to figure out, okay, you've got one, you've got two, we're all going to talk about three, whatever that is, but you can't stop there. There also has to be, particularly the more complex your plans are, the more complex your organization is, the by nature you're going to have more complex response plans. It's important to train in a realistic scenario. So it's important to actually surprise. Surprise! Here's a thing. And as everyone's adjusting and role playing and doing the things they're supposed to be doing in response to that. Do something that real life would do. Throw in an injection. Throw in a random information leak that somebody accidentally put out on Twitter. Or somebody, you know, gets a phone call from a random reporter who got tipped off. So throwing in that element of real life, because you're very rarely going to be in a fully controlled experiment as something is happening. So throwing in those sort of unknowns makes a really big difference to helping everyone realize how they might actually react in that type of a scenario. So what you're really describing is um, what I refer to as a data breach tabletop exercise, I believe. Is that but a correct? messy one. you got to have a messy one. Right, right. With the injections, the surprises, catch people off guard, get yep. them to sweat a little bit or squirm in their chair. And uh, that's when you know the tabletop, the exercise, the planning, everything is a success. Exactly. Um, if you get to the end of it and everyone says, well, that was super fun. All right. See you on Wednesday. Right. <laughs> you probably didn't make it messy enough. Yeah. And I'm not sure anyone really had much to take away from right. it. Yep. How often should it, an organization conduct those exercises? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a answering every question with, you know, more than one answer. I think that scenario planning, um, the training, is tied to the planning. How often do you update your plans and how often do you update the people who are on the team that are responsible for that plan? So having a, in my mind, having a really big, realistic training simulation once or twice a year is sufficient. 
but I think you need to be reviewing your plan on a much more regular basis, particularly if you're a large complex company or you know something at the enterprise level, because the people who are involved in that plan, the people on that team, you need to make sure that they are still there. And when there are always things changing in your company and there's always people moving around or getting a new phone number or a new assistant, that's the type of information that will totally derail your plan in the very first day. Something as basic as how do I pick up the phone and call the right person? Um, are they still at their desk today? If they're not at their desk, what do I do? Um, so updating that kind of information in your plan on a regular basis, making sure that if you have any new lines of business, they're accounted for any new communications channels are factored into that. Do you now have a Twitter account that you didn't have before? All of those pieces are things that need to be regularly maintained at a minimum on a quarterly basis. And then I think the bigger training exercises, um, the big messy ones can be once, maybe twice a year. Interesting. Yeah. I, you can always train more, right? But obviously it gets to a point where, you know, you've got to balance, okay, actually doing business with training. But uh, Right. You've got diminishing returns when you lock your entire executive team in a room for a day or two. <laughs> right, right. So I want to switch gears, Lauren, just a little bit and talk about the security leader, the CISO, the VP of information security, whomever the person who is responsible for cybersecurity at that organization. I'd like to, I'd like to ask that maybe you give some advice to that individual in terms of what styles should they use to potentially report a cybersecurity incident to the C-suite, the board, whomever it is? And what I mean by that is we had kind of a maxim that we went by when I was in the military that, you know, obviously Colin Paul made famous by when he asked during his briefs, he said, tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, and tell me what you think. You've probably heard that probably from him himself. But uh, um but anyway, that was kind of the maxim that we used when, you know, we talked about a crisis or we talked about a mission briefing or planning or any of those types of things. And when it comes to, we'll just use the CISO as the person responsible for, you know, protecting the organization. Can you give some advice in terms of what style they should potentially use to go in and report, okay, we think something has occurred? You know, I mean, we'll, what does the board want to hear, right? What does the C-suite need to hear? I mean, those types of things. Right. The So I think this is a key part of the communications. When we talk about how communications should be infiltrating throughout your entire process before, during, and after. And I think that initial communication, as you start moving up the food chain, becomes critical. Because at that point, you're taking what you know, and you're communicating it to the people who have to make decisions about what to do next. So you keep it as basic and simple and focused on that as possible. That's not the time to start showing that you're the biggest brain in the room and you know all the technical vocabulary. Nobody cares. Nobody even knows what you're saying. It's, It's a time to be very straightforward about exactly what you said, what you know, what you don't know, And what the possibilities are of what you could find out, as well as the timeline for when you'll have more information. That's a very key part. So in my mind, the objective in that conversation is to make sure that at the end of it, the person you're talking to, the senior decision maker, executive, whomever that you're speaking to, knows what's going on as clearly and as succinctly as possible so that they can then start making decisions about 
what do we do next? Which plan do we pull off the shelf? Which scenario do we trigger? Who needs to be involved? Who gets pulled into this? Because their job then becomes handling this from their role um, at the top of the organization. And I see your job as sort of the owner of all the information as making sure accuracy is driving those decisions, making sure that it's not a guessing game, that you're not saying, well, we think it could be this horrible thing here. And then that's the takeaway from the conversation. That's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to go in and scare anybody. You're trying to be very realistic and maintaining a complete adherence to the set of facts that are in front of you and the potential paths that you could find yourself going down based on what you know now um, is hugely important. Yeah. I think that answers the question. It when does. You're- no, it really does. And I think that, you know, you mentioned something earlier that I think is a key through all of this. And that is when you said that, you know, you have to set the expectation with the decision makers that, look, we're going to continually get, up, get updated information, right? So this whole scenario might change. And, you know, you need to continuously kind of set that expectation and say, look, as smart as we get, we'll make sure that you know what we know and you know what we think kind of thing. So that exactly right. And we will come back to you here, here and here and tell you what we know then, because I think you'll find yourself in those kinds of conversations where putting yourself in, say, the CEO's shoes oh my gosh, I just got all this information. Their lives start flashing before their eyes. They start (laughs) imagining every horrible headline they've read in the last six months with their name in it. And rapid fire questions just start coming. And there's probably not answers to 85% of those questions, but it's important when they are asked to say, we don't know yet. Uh, We don't have that information yet. Taking guesses at that point is really just going to spin everybody up and send them off into, you know, downward spirals that aren't necessary. Yeah. Um, so maintaining the calm and maintaining the sense of no, really, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And those really important questions you have, we're working to find answers to those, but I'm not going to guess at those answers right now because I don't want to be misleading. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really important thing and it, it's similar to, One of the important factors that I'm always talking to clients about when you're communicating externally as well, it's okay to say that you don't have answers and it's important to say that you don't have answers because you don't want to guess and turn out to be wrong. Yep. No, I I think that, that, that hit it on the head right there. I mean, that's exactly what I was kind of uh, asking is that, you know, at some point, you know, it's not the time for looking good, right? It's the time for doing good when it comes to having to provide that objective fact-based information instead of going in there and saying, Oh, I've got it. You know, I've got it. Oh, I think this or I think that. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, that, you know, it's so critical how that information is initially delivered because that's kind of, you know, you set the ball in motion, so to speak, right? Right. Everything you set is the tone to for the entire rest of the yep. reaction at exactly. that point. Now let's hear more from Aaron Pritz as he describes what TrustMap is in his own words. The other parts of my job is with program maturity. Um, some really nice things that the product's doing to you know, rate yourself via the control owners that actually own controls and again, very interactive assessment tools to kind of rate yourself and rate your program and be able to see, you know, are you moving the the ball or not? I think over investing in anything and everything and 
having tons of funding that doesn't really get spent effectively is a problem in security. So you've got to really measure where you're moving the needle and really align that to your portfolio and program management, which you can also do in TrustMap. What is TrustMap? I would really say it's the framework alignment of GRC into the ability to do assessments. Um, I think it really does a lot of the things that GRC wanted to do, but again, more, and in less time and far less money. It's all the portfolio and program management that currently in InfoSec groups are cobbled together through Microsoft Project, SharePoint, and Excel tracking, and PowerPoint status updates. Um, and then it's also program maturity measurement, which right now a lot of programs, including my prior program, we were basically doing everything in Excel and PowerPoint to try to keep tabs on where are we pushing the needle, where not. And again, spending hours and weeks and months um, working on some of the stuff that I saw right out of the box in the first 30 minutes of the demo of TrustMap. So those are a few of the thoughts that I would say um, why I'm so excited about TrustMap and why I would be, you know, if I go back to a corporate security leadership job, why I would be coming out of the gate with that versus trying some of the things that I've already tried and, and, and weren't overly happy with. Remember, listeners of the podcast can schedule a free trial of TrustMap at TrustMap.com slash business. Now let's get back to the show. So we've talked a lot about communicating based on a event. Now let's back up a moment and talk about communicating before an event. So, uh, for example, uh, how does the business truly understand if their company is performing well and managing to, you know, risk, cyber risk and, and cybersecurity expectations, let's just generically call it, based on the business's appetite for that. So how do executives today, how does the business, when I say executives, I use that term very generically, uh, how does the business understand uh, what is really going on from your experience only, um, not asking you to create a solution on the fly here, but uh, based on your experience, how does that communication really occur effectively between uh, cybersecurity, uh, both operations and, and the uh, compliance and governance area uh, to the business? So when a negative event does occur, uh, they understand that, look, we have a team in place, uh, we have these things going on, and, and we knew that one day we might get caught off guard, this is that day. Uh, so leading up to that, they're not saying, well, we were writing checks for millions of dollars over these years. What were you guys doing with it all? I think that one of the important things to remember is that one of the major trends that we see across just cybersecurity in general is that the level of responsibility for what happens in a company is starting to creep up the food chain. So you're starting to find regulations being passed in industries and in different states and just in general, there's starting to be a higher level of authority that is responsible for the you know, well-being of a company. So CEOs are having to sign off on plans. Um, boards are having to have regular updates and regularly sign off on things. So explaining the value and the importance 
of what your security plan is for a company is getting maybe a small bit easier than it used to be where people used to just kind of write off and say, that's nice. That's for the IT department. It's like you have enough over there already, but they're starting to realize the importance and the value of a strong cybersecurity program to the business um, at large. So the types of communications and responsibility is starting to go two ways. It's not just bring your budget annually, make a good case for it, hope you get some of it, and then go buy a firewall that's that strong. It's becoming where it's a, it's a push and pull for information. Boards and executives know that they need to, are starting to learn, let me rephrase, starting to learn that they need to be accountable for some of those things and they need to be asking questions. And the security folks on the technical side are starting to realize that they have an opportunity to really elevate the importance of what they're doing so that a company starts giving the resources and the authority that they know they need to do it the right way. Um, and in some cases, you have folks who are starting to go, crap, everybody's really all up in my security business right now, and they used to just leave me alone. But I think that's a good thing. So the conversations and the interactions back and forth, the communication side of it is much more of a dialogue than it used to be. Um, and the more effective that dialogue is on the front end, the better off that response is going to be when something happens on the back end. Very good. Well, thanks. Thank you for uh, describing that because I think it is oftentimes maybe not addressed uh, more urgently uh, before a negative event does occur. And I'm sure you see that every day as you are helping companies in response mode as well as helping them plan for the day they need to be in response mode. Uh, so I appreciate that. Yes. Absolutely. Sometimes half the battle is just already knowing who you're going to talk to, already having that relationship established. So you're not introducing yourself and then delivering bad news. Right. Yeah. Hi, by the way, I'm your CISO. And <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. Guess what? We just broke something. Yeah, right, um, right. Isn't usually the most endearing way to start a conversation, particularly with, say, like a CEO. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of good smoothing it over things that you can do, you know, to sort of not to fall back on another cliche, but to kind of prep that battlefield before you need to get out there. Mm-hmm. No, I like the cliches. You have good ones. I can tell you've been in D.C. for a while. <laughs> you can see the ones that I bite back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, you know, for some of our audience members that may be um, kind of increasing their role in the organization but have historically been in IT, um, working really heavily in technology, uh, but are getting into the CISO role, a director uh, level, and needing to do more of the business level communication, are there any pointers, um, resources that you could point uh, those folks to to get a, a quick up to speed on how the business views and thinks about cybersecurity, cyber risk, and communicate that to effectively uh, with that audience? Wow, I think that's a great question. There are there's starting to be a lot more just out there in the general course of conversation where people are starting to not only make the connections between the business side of the world and the technical side of the world, but starting to really kind of dive into it and say, okay, what does that actually mean for all these different roles? Gosh, I apologize. I don't know of any one direct source that is just jumping to mind of this is your go-to, you know, CISO for dummies kind of thing, unless that exists. If that exists, you should probably read it. But I think that there's, there are a lot of 
publications out there, you know, a mega plug, something like CSO Online or Security um, Magazine that is really taking a look at sort of the business side of the security industry and tend to have really great commentary on that overlap. So for someone looking to make that shift, kind of transition, like you said, from the technical side to a bit of the broader business perspective um, that applies to that, you know, those are some resources I would recommend. Or it can always just be worth having a having a conversation with someone, reaching out to an organization, you know, such as yours or myself who who work with companies to do some of this work and to make some of these transitions easier. And sometimes just as a matter of sitting down and getting a perspective from somebody else that can help. A third party. Yeah. Almost a mentorship or a coach. Exactly. We, you know, we coach everything else. Why not that? Right. Makes sense. All right. So one last question, Lauren, and we like to ask everybody that we have on the podcast. So if you could change one thing about the industry, just one, you are the benevolent uh, you know, empress or whatever it is for a day, and you can change anything you want to about the industry, what would it be? Interesting. You don't have well, to be benevolent, by the way, either. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. <laughs> no, no, we're we're diplomatic. I mean, communications, we're always benevolent, or we at least let you think that. Right. Um, the, I would say, again, from from my perspective, one of the changes, waving the magic wand and changing just one small piece of the mindset that I tend to see a lot of executives having towards security is to not undervalue the role that good planning and good communications throughout the process can have. That being able to communicate internally amongst yourselves as you're planning and preparing things ahead of time and bringing the right people into the conversations will pay off infinitely more than the time and resources that you spent doing it in the first place when something happens. That effectively communicating with your customers isn't something that should be at the bottom of your list. Effectively communicating with your staff, with your board, with all those different groups. I think if I had to wave the magic wand, it would be basically stop rolling your eyes at the idea of (laughs) the impact communications can have. Because I tend to get a lot of eye rolls. People say, oh, communications, that's nice. Yes, we, we already have a PR team. They already do stuff. Uh-huh. Okay, all right, that's fine. I agree that you probably do. Um, but there's a lot that can be enhanced and done that in reality at the end of the day is going to save your ass when you need it. Right. Um, and I think that's a piece that tends to get overlooked. So that overlay of communications throughout this process I think my magic wand would sprinkle that type of pixie dust across the place. Yeah, that's a good one. So it kind of goes back to the old saying is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Exactly, right? And this is way easier than anything the doctor says. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I rarely show up with needles. You're welcome. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lauren, we really appreciate you spending time with us today, educating our listeners about what it means to uh, prepare and design crisis communication, particularly with regard to cybersecurity and and not the matter of if but when scenario that we are all finding ourselves in, whether we are a consumer or a business. Um, so if people want to reach out to you directly and, and get in contact with you, maybe they have follow-up questions or they'd like to have a, a more in-depth conversation, how would they do that? 
Sure. Yeah. Always, always happy to chat with anyone who's interested in, in this kind of a conversation. Um, I would say the easiest bet is to head to our website. It's dealymollerstrategies.com. Uh, nothing super complex. And there's contact information on there. You can learn a little bit more about who we are and what we do. And email on there, phone number on there is always the best. And we'll apply uh, that website to our podcast website so our listeners can go there as well right. to find it. Thank you Absolutely. very much. We appreciate your time today. Yeah, yeah thank you, thank you guys for again it. for having me. This was a lot of fun. Clearly, clearly, there's a lot to talk about, and you know, if you're willing to have the conversation, it could go on quite some time. So, I appreciate the chance to chat. All right, thank you. Lauren. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Business of Security podcast. A special thanks to today's guest, Lauren Mahler, president of Dealer Mahler Strategies. Your hosts today were Chad Beckman, founder and CEO of Secure Digital Solutions, and Ed Snodgrass, chief information security officer at SDS. You can connect with Chad and Ed on LinkedIn and learn more about Secure Digital Solutions at TrustSDS.com. Our show was produced by Dan Rollins with Livewire Films. You can find Dan on LinkedIn and learn more about Livewire Films at LivewireFilms.com. Check out our next podcast episode with Chris Veltos, cyber risk strategist at Prudent Security. The topic is grooming future security leaders. You've been listening to the Business of Security podcast, and that's a wrap. <laughs>